1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game Wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people, like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search The Thin Green Line Podcast on Patreon.com and join us. The Copper Pig Brewery in Lancaster, New Hampshire, is brewing traditional and innovative high-quality beers, as well as serving a large menu of creative comfort foods, appealing to all walks of life, with daily specials sourcing many ingredients locally charitable involvement and support of their community is the cornerstone to the copper pig brewery's mission voted number one in new hampshire by wmur viewers choice two years in a row 2018 and 2019 please join me at the copper pig
0: we love our children we protect them we guide them we prepare them for life in the world with all that we do from deep in our hearts we cannot control all things Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a non-profit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief and Wildlife Heritage a Foundation of New Hampshire at nhwildlifeheritage.org and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers Please join me Game Warden Wayne Saunders and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife saving lives and having fun all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigations, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders. And this is Warden's Watch. Wardens Watch. Episode 44. Conservation Officer Matt Holmes, New Hampshire. Matt Holmes and I enjoyed a ride down to a fundraiser for Operation Game Thief and AIM New Hampshire. Just a good time. Community policing is so important among game wardens and fishing game across the nation. We start working with youth, usually at a young age, um, just setting that foundation, setting up that relationship as far as community policing. And it's just so important to continue that. So when they see a game warden as an adult or even still as a juvenile or as a young person, that they can approach that game warden to ask questions, to just have a good normal conversation and build that rapport. And it starts that community policing then. And it starts that fundamental of the Operation Game Thieves and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, basically, that they can help us. Good sportsmen and women are needed out there. We are just one set of eyes, one set of ears. You sportsmen and women are force multipliers. You good guys are force multipliers. And we need force multipliers. Arizona did a study in the 70s and it decided they actually had a game warden going out there and putting up evidence for people to report, and they figured about 1% of poaching got reported. 1%. So they would take roadkill and make it look like a crime and place it out in areas where people were and see how many times it got reported. Pretty interesting study. Like I said, it was done back in the 70s, so I'm not sure how current it is, but when you come up with 1% of poaching gets reported, that is just unbelievable, unbelievable how much we miss. And we probably wouldn't have even one, you know, the the, the portion we catch without sportsmen because that study was designed to have people in the outdoors that are recreating report. That was the whole purpose to see how many of these incidents got reported. And it was 1%. It just blows my mind every time I, I talk about that. There was also a study done in Wisconsin, if I'm correct, where opening morning they interviewed hunters, some violators, some not. So it was a waterfowl season, opening day of duck season, early shooting happened. So they interviewed the people that didn't early shoot. And a lot of them said that they knew the game warden, they knew his reputation, and they wouldn't want to put him in a position of having a bad reaction to what they did they didn't because of his reputation because his link to the community it wasn't a direct link sometimes it was a friend of a friend of a friend or they knew his reputation those are the people that said they didn't violate because they didn't want to put the game warden in that position they didn't want to violate because of that relationship and the reputation of the game warden so that's how important community policing is I'm sure John Norris, uh, if he was here, he would be backing me up 100%. John, the fall is a busy time even for a retired game warden. So John will be back with us. I hope next time he's off on an excursion. John's got a lot of uh, adventures left out in the field, working with his knives, working with a thin green line TV. Just a, lo- a lot of irons in the fire for John, and uh, it- it's awesome. I've really enjoyed having him working with me. It's just been a great relationship. It's great to have that Western influence. And he's a very dynamic individual. And it's been an awesome uh, partnership. So I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I certainly, when he's not here, it feels like uh, there's something missing. For the continuation of Warden's Watch and the Thin Green Line podcast, we're going to try to do as much as we can together. But every now and then, you may hear John by himself at some point. Remember, Report wildlife violations, and that's including fish. I always knock off fish hunting seasons this time of year. Please report the crimes you see. Game wardens are looking for credible information for cases. So the state that you hunt in, be aware of their Operation Game Thieves hotlines, their wildlife alert hotlines, their turn-in-a-poacher hotlines, the tip lines. Um, There are so many different ones out there. So if you're in a state, find out what that phone number is. And then if you don't know, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. Go to their website. They can provide that information right on the website for you. So you can look at a state that you're hunting, click on it, and that's how to report wildlife crime. as has the whole U.S. and Canada on there. Please do that. Also, support your, your Operation Game Thieves and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers by being a member. If they have membership like International Wildlife Crime Stoppers does, You can be a member of International Wildlife Crime Stoppers by just a a very small fee that helps game wardens internationally and focuses on North America. Thanks. Enjoy Matt Holmes. I always do. Matt and I worked, as you'll hear, very close together for a long time. He's a dynamic individual, a great game warden, and we're going to have two parts of this series, which... I'm looking forward to. We have some current events that Matt's going to talk about on the second one, and we'll hopefully get Bob Mancini in on that as well. Sit back, enjoy. Thank you for listening to Warden's Watch. So, today's interviews with conservation Matt Holmes. We got a pretty awesome day ahead of us where in Matt's cruiser, heading down to a fundraiser for Operation Game Thief, and AIM. AIM is Academics, Integrity, and Marksmanship. It's a youth program on shooting sports, which uh, I like to shoot, even though I'm not that great at it, and Matt likes to shoot. And we've been involved in a lot of youth things, Matt, through the years working together. We both, I think, have a passion for the younger generation and passing on our knowledge and doing the right thing to, to help that. Isn't Absolutely. We've been teaching hunter safety for how long together? Uh, been 11 years now, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have those people that have those skill sets that actually can do things like that and have a passion for it. So we go out of our own way. A- after I retired, I'm still involved with hunter safety and still getting those people out and, and giving them the certification to be able to hunt and fish and passing on that knowledge, working with the Barry Camp, doing this AIM program. I think that... It's a pretty cool thing to get kids involved with shooting sports, don't you think, Matt?
1: Absolutely. You know, they, uh, you know, are showing, you know, motivation to do something, you know, outdoors. And uh, if we can help, you know, bring uh, some uh, extra little bit of excitement to that mm-hmm. and encourage them, uh, I only see good coming from it.
2: Right. And just the, the, the aim thing, academics comes first, you know, and then integrity. And I don't think we hear enough about integrity you know, doing the right thing all the time and making sure everybody perceives it as the right thing, and that just it says so much to, to throw that in a name of something because we need to have integrity, especially as conservation officers, as law enforcement. We need to make sure that we put that out when we're dealing with people and dealing with animals and everything else we deal with that we have that integrity. That's that's something I think is good to put in a name, don't you?
1: Absolutely. You know, in our line of work as game wardens, you know, your integrity is your meal ticket. You know, if you lose face with the court and with the public, mm. you're, you're essentially useless. So mm. we live it every day and see the benefits of it. And uh, if we can encourage that with the next generation, it should be part of what we do.
2: Certainly for young people to start embracing that, especially if they want to be game wardens or in law enforcement. That's what I tell them. Keep your nose clean. You know, that's that's the biggest important part as you grow up to keep focus on what you want to do in the long run whether it's you want to fly fighter jets or you want to be a carpenter or anything it's still your integrity is really important in almost everything you do and you carry it with you matt and i go way back I, matt is one of those trainees that i had that sticks out in my my mind and Day one, the, Matt's working with me. Your, your first day on the job, uh, just uh, you'll never forget that, will you?
1: I will not. <clears throat> my first day in uniform ever as a New Hampshire game warden, I was slated to work with Wayne. I'd been on a rescue the night before, and after coming off that rescue, driving home, I started to hear a, a noise in the front end of my cruiser. And I'm not a mechanic, but it definitely didn't sound good. I called Wayne up. And uh, I knew we had caught, you know, right off the bat the following morning. So there was a lot of need to, you know, maintain a timeline, meet when we say we're going to meet. And I explained to him this noise. He did a little legwork and said, well, you know, we've got a mechanic here at the shop in Lancaster, which was about an hour from where I lived. Said, so just get it up here. We'll take a look. I put my mind to it that I was going to get it up
2: there. That I I remember distinctly making those calls and saying, "Yep, just just limp it up here, Matt. We'll we'll have Kevin take a look at it when you get there." But then I I also remember the next call <laughs> came.
1: <laughs> so the following morning, I'm headed north uh, to the meeting point, and this noise is getting progressively worse. And again, you got to remember that this is my first day ever in uniform. This is a big day. You know, it's really kind of the start of my official law enforcement career. And the noise is getting worse in the front of my cruiser, and the shake in the steering wheel is getting worse. (laughs) And a prudent person would have pulled over and said, something's definitely wrong. In my mind, all I knew was I needed to get somewhere. (laughs) And... No matter what, I was going to do that. So as I worked my way north, I made it uh, into the town that I was supposed to be in, uh, but not without a line of traffic behind me, people turning around in the street ahead of me to see what that terrible noise was (laughs) coming at them. I crested a large hill on the south end of the town, and uh, I remember hearing a noise that sounded like a a short uh, burst of automatic fire. And as that happened, I watched my front left wheel pass me. And I had enough time to look while the cruiser was still suspended in air (laughs) and go, that's my wheel. (laughs) And the next thing I knew, I'm skidding, the ABS light is is blinking, the steering wheel is shaking. And uh, I'm skidding brakes on on the rotor into the breakdown lane. I I just felt the world was coming apart. I threw on my blue lights. I looked in the rear view. There was already blue lights behind me. I was basically a deer in the headlights going, I can't believe that just happened. And now what's going to happen after this? So uh, oh, it happened that a, uh, a state uh, truck trooper was behind me. He jumped out and I'm sure very quickly recognized the fact I was brand new. He said, hey, why don't you get on the radio, call call this in. He said, I'll go and try and find your wheel. I didn't know anything about repeaters at the time. I was close enough to use a direct channel to the office, but I didn't know that. So I got on a statewide repeater and got a hold of the secretary from our regional office and just said I needed a tow truck. And she asked me if I was sure. And I said, <laughs> absolutely. I just lost a wheel off my cruiser. And she said, well, we'll send somebody right up. This having gone over a statewide repeater, the big boss in Concord heard it. I think everybody else who was in hearing range heard it. There was no secrets. This is back, you know, 15 and a half years ago when information traveled significantly slower than it did now. So if you had an issue, you actually had time to triage it and do some damage control before things got bad. The cat was out of the bag within minutes of this happening. As it turned out, uh, because I hadn't made the meeting, Wayne, you'd headed to court already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm stuck roadside, beat beat red in the face, believing my career is over. I'm like, well, this is great. I've worked for this my whole life. I just spent a pile of money on an education to help get me here and uh made it through the hiring process and I'm going to get fired first day in uniform. And as luck would have it we had a uh, a deputy working for us at the time named Chuck Jellison and Chuck had retired after 27 years from state police. Mm. He was a troop commander. He was the best person that could have ever shown up because with that many years of state service, he'd had mishaps a plenty and knew that uh it wasn't going to uh, really negatively affect me down the line because of the trail of uh, calls I'd made Mm -hmm. ahead of time. And so he was the best thing that could have happened because he did a really good job calming me down as we drove across the county to find Wayne, (laughs) who in the meantime had been called out of court to say his trainee had crashed
2: (laughs) and was headed
1: in the complete opposite direction. Mm -hmm. That was... uh, Kind of our introduction to yeah, each other, Yeah,
2: first, so. first day uh, <laughs> that, that neither one of us will ever forget. Boy, I've never, for sure you won't. I just, uh, I can still remember hearing that you lost the wheel, and I could see that tire, <laughs> picture you watching your tire go past you and going, oh my goodness. And the, the pucker factor, because all of us have been trainees, all of us have started as game wardens, or if you've started a new job, it's it's the same type of thing you have a horrible thing happen your first day on the job and at the the pucker factor okay. is yeah it's over the top it's just over the top and you couldn't have said it better Matt that is just uh it's just crazy it uh,
1: now makes for a great story but it does
2: uh, uh, all those after the facts make for a great that's <laughs> right, yeah
1: and I remember sticking my head through the door at the office and. Uh, this is after I came through the door. People are whispering, "He's here, he's here." Concord's on the phone, and so again, it just uh, it had my blood pressure maxed. And uh, I stuck my head through the door, and you're smiling like the Cheshire Cat, and you're like, "Hey," and I'm like, "Hey," and I remember you saying, "Hey, you're going to learn how to do a report today." <laughs> I figured as much. That was that.
2: Yeah, so. well, it was happened, and uh, actually with. We couldn't figure out why Matt's cruiser was loose. The, the, actually, the lugs were loose on his rim, and we did some checking around, and other cruisers had loose rims as well. He was, was probably the first to come off, but eventually, so one would think that maybe maybe at that rescue or something that you guys were all at, somebody took and loosened up the, the lug nuts on a quite a few of the cruisers we had. So sometimes that happens, unfortunately. Not everybody's a great guy out there for sure. I don't understand why people do that, especially when they're emergency response vehicles. You could be really hurting somebody else by damaging a police cruiser. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It
1: doesn't. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, my lost wheel didn't hit anybody, but that was Mm. essentially a missile. Yes. Um, It was 100 yards down in the woods beyond the edge of the road. Mm. In hindsight, it could have killed somebody coming the other way, especially absolutely. if they were on a motorcycle.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So people, especially young people, don't have a tendency to think that far ahead. But I, I want to get something straight, Matt, right off the bat. You're, you're not from Maine. Because...
1: I am not from Maine. So <laughs> according to other people, I have an accent. You know, <laughs> I don't notice it, but it sticks out much like Wayne's laugh. Mm-hmm. He can't hide, and I can't, I can't hide either exactly. because of uh, my local dialect. But <laughs> for the record, it is local. I'm a fourth-generation New Hampshireite, and uh, it's, it's completely NH, no Maine involved. Uh, and which town are you from? I'm from Warner. Um, Warner is uh, south-central part of the state, uh, just a uh, little bit northwest of Concord. Even though I've lived elsewhere for a long time, Warner will always be home and where I'm from.
2: Yeah. I think you're saying it too fast. You, I, I remember you distinctly going, Warner, New Hampshire. That's right.
1: Because <laughs> there's also a Warren, New Hampshire, and Warren has a rocket in the middle of the town. So oh. when people <laughs> are getting to know me, they're like, oh, you're from the town with a missile. I'm like, no, I'm not.
2: <laughs> I'm from nope. Warner. That's
1: right. No missile in my town. Just a big mountain. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And one thing I will tell Matt, I was very, very, very impressed with your typing skills as a trainee. And so much I'm making my, my you know, that my kid doesn't even have to take typing in school. Can you believe that? I'm making him type so it'll learn how to type. And maybe by the time he's in needs it, he'll be talking to everything. But uh, your, your typing skills were off the chart. I was like, my God, that kid can type. Oh, and you, there's a reason for that, isn't
1: there? There is. It's pretty ironic because uh, Wayne knows it firsthand in that I am uh, an old fashioned man in a high tech world. And uh, <laughs> there is very little that I gravitate to with technology. As luck would have it, my mother taught typing. Um, and so not only did I get it in school, but she uh, kept a very watchful eye over myself and my brother and made us learn to type. Like a lot of, you know, life's lessons it was
2: no fun at the time but man has it paid dividends since oh there is no doubt no doubt that that just jumps out at me the other thing that jumps out at me as a trainee is uh making you drive code three because if there was anything that made matt uncomfortable it was driving with lights and siren it was a whole different matt driving he would tense up i mean just ultimate you know attention hands ten and two and all focused on driving and when I say code three, he's not really going code three. <laughs> he, he might be doing sixty-five, seventy. That That was Matt's code three. <laughs> I'd have to tell him to pick it up every now and then. But uh, that was one uncomfortable thing. I always remember we had a head injury on a mountain. I'm like, we got to go code three to this. And, oh, I could tell you didn't like that. And, yeah. that was, uh, and still to this day, you, I'm sure you don't like driving code three.
1: I don't. So, you know, code three is kind of our highest level of mm. response, where it means, you know, get there. As quickly as you possibly can. And, uh, yeah, my, my first times driving Code 3 especially were, you know, an absolute train wreck. We <laughs> got there, but it wasn't pretty. It was a lot of hard on the brakes, hard on the gas, was, uh, anything but fluid. Just, uh, one of those things kind of out of my comfort zone. And if I can avoid it, I still do. But, uh, yeah, those, those early ones especially were, uh, memorable.
2: And on the flip side, Matt, is when we got on an ATV, I, I distinctly remember we were going up this uh, the, the road that uh, over in Stark actually, Roberts Brook. Right, ran right along Roberts Brook, and there was a washout there that was substantial. It was like you know probably six seven feet straight down, six seven feet straight up. And I think I said to them like, ah, oh, we, we can't make that. We'll have to turn around. And and you were like, no, we can make that. And and you you just don't even wait for me to answer. You just. Scoot straight down this thing and straight up the other side, and I just remember going to myself, going, "Oh, now I got to do that. That <laughs> sucks." <laughs> and I did. I was <laughs> much like the, the, the time flew had me go off the cliff on the border with my snowmobile. I was like, "Oh crap, my my skis are already off." And he's like, "Oh, just give it a little gas." And I'm, you guys, I'm surprised I, I didn't crash because of you guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, we we all bring our own skill sets to the job. I guess that's an important part of being a game warden. You know, you don't have to be the master of anything, but it helps to have a few tricks in the bag and be able to learn. I had grown up with a family who were, you know, best friends who in, you know, hindsight did a whole lot of violating on ATVs, but we didn't know any better at the time. So we were along for the ride. They had, you know, four wheelers that we rode until, you know, they all but fell apart. And Mm -hmm. through that, i learned to ride and it's still you know part of my comfort zone to this day that was just uh one of the ways in which um i could uh try and keep my uh, head above water as a trainee.
2: yeah no doubt you were highly skilled with an atv and you just don't expect that for matt that was one of those things that kind of popped out he doesn't like to drive code three but man he can scale a dirt bank that's almost vertical which just uh, just blew my mind. I didn't see that coming that day either. <laughs> <But> <laughs> you're definitely right. Everybody brings their own skill sets, and that's what makes a, a district or anybody you know a good group. If you have different skill sets and you can bring it to the table, Glenn, with his building aspects. Has been a, a huge resource. His father came in and helped us build additions onto our pole barns, and just certainly uh, have had a lot of guys like that with skill sets that can all jump in and help. But is the guy that has that set that we just rely on. Oh, and I think that's true with most game wardens. We're called the, the Swiss Army Knife of law enforcement. remember being in a training, and the guy's like, uh, who has 100 feet of rope in their cruiser? You know, quite, you know it was about half the class raised their hand. Okay, who has 200 feet? And, then, you know, it gets down a little. We got to 500 feet, and I was the only one with my arm up. He goes, why do you have 500 feet in your cruiser? I said, we're pulling moose into the woods. <laughs> yeah. And he's like... Wow. I said, And then I told them I got from our uh, local mill runs of paper machines off this rope. And when it's done, they, they give it to us and it's still pretty uh, substantial in pulls. And yeah, I got about probably 500 feet, maybe even more in maybe. my cruiser because it, it becomes useful. So, this army knives with law enforcement. But definitely, uh, Matt brings his woods knowledge to that and he's very very good in the woods to, to the fact that your your personal plate is still uh is it still woodsman it is mm-hmm. yeah oh so, and you grew up in the woods and you get very savvy in the woods and always good and hunting and fishing his skill levels are are, are pretty impressive especially when it comes to investigations what what's one of your most in, memorable investigations matt you've had
1: there's you know there's certainly been a variety over the years that have. uh uh, you know, kept my attention. But uh, one of my favorites, still to this day, um, involves uh, uh, several people in a local town who were uh, poaching deer. Basically, the case was made off a photo in the newspaper and DNA, mm. and that that was a really really good one. You still probably. have
2: that photo kicking around?
1: Uh, it is probably buried in the yeah. bowels of my office somewhere. I'll have to track there, that because that so.
2: was. Uh... It was one of those photos that just stirred emotion and anger, just all kinds of things. Yeah. And it
1: was emotion and anger that really solved that mm-hmm. case. Um, so just going back to it, this was uh, pretty early on in my career. And uh, one of the nice things about being early on is that most guys are super gung-ho. Mm-hmm. And I was no exception to that. It, it all started with a call late in the deer season from uh, a local police department saying, hey, there's a uh, tarp thrown over a bank next to the Israel River in town. It looks like there might be a deer leg sticking out of the tarp. Uh, And so I went uh, down and investigated it, and it turned out to be parts and pieces of multiple deer wrapped up in this tarp. And in our area in New Hampshire, there's very limited opportunity to shoot does legally. At least three of the deer in this tarp were does. The chances of them being harvested legally were slim to none. Um and so myself and Wayne and Mark Ober kind of pieced through the parts and uh ultimately uh I took the the heads that were present and I took them to a local veterinarian who uh x-rayed them for me for free and uh, they all had 22 bullets in them. Mm. You know, fragmented up, you know, were pretty much indiscernible when you looked at the heads, but under x-ray, you could see that there were bullet fragments in there. So, you know, it kind of confirmed all our suspicions. And uh, aside from that, uh, there was very, very little physical evidence. Nobody had seen the dumping occur. I think it had snowed between when the tarp had been thrown and when uh, it was discovered. And uh, try as I might, you know, there was there was nothing to go on. And a twenty two bullet in general has very, very little value ballistically, um, aside from getting a caliber. So um, I hemmed and hawed and, you know, kind of, you know, just chased down leads, but, you know, failed to uh you know develop anything substantial and so ultimately uh the decision was made to to put a photo of these deer carcasses in the paper and at the time it was not exactly risqué but it was not uh widely accepted to mm. try and put a picture of butchered animal remains oh, in the paper.
2: And-, and it was the worst picture you ever saw because it, like, it looked like it was like one mangled thing because it was all frozen together with deer heads sticking out and deer legs and it was just, yeah. I, I don't even know if you could count the deer by looking at that picture. It just looked like there was 50 deer wrapped up in a ball and it, it was the most, yeah, it, it, it was the most emotionally disturbing picture and we got that on the front page did yep.
1: we? we we got it on the front page we had crafted the article to highlight the fact that um there had been a shoddy butchering job done on these deer and that a lot of uh you know very good meat had gone to waste because yep. of the way they were butchered it elicited a response immediately even people amongst the community who were suspect number one were irate and they weren't irate because the deer had been poached but they were irate because the deer had been wasted Mm. Um, and it it got uh, the community talking in a big way and it took uh, I want to say it took a week or two I ultimately uh, received an anonymous call and I think it came in through a message I remember it was a day off and I ended up calling uh, the person back who happened to be a local woman. Um, and as it turned out, she partied with some guys on a regular basis who loved to uh, get drunk and go out at night and shoot deer. <laughs> I arranged to meet her. I remember we, we found a out-of-the-way location behind a building, me and my personal vehicle, and she uh, met me. We had a coffee, and she laid out this story of... A couple local yokels who would uh, get drunk and go out at night and shoot deer. And not because they needed the meat, but because they enjoyed doing it. One of them was uh, somebody who was pretty well known to the PD. And the other one was an unknown guy who originated from Vermont, who was essentially squatting in a house in Lancaster. That started the whole investigation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it started. It gave us a, a lead. And, you know, Operation Game Thiefs are so important. I think, again, that's kind of key, getting those pictures. We, we offered a reward, when that? Didn't we, we did offer we a reward. offered a reward. Yep. So give, give somebody that normally wouldn't have the incentive, incentive. But certainly uh, looking at that picture and seeing those deer angered people. And I think that was more about getting the information we got than it was about the money. It was about, hey, this is, this is out of control, even to those people that... Whether they approve of a poaching or it's accepted, you know, they, they know what they poach, they eat. So there's there's different layers of poachers or different levels of poaching. There's those guys that just do it for fun to kill, which even the poacher that shoots them and eats them doesn't like those people. So it's 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 different. There's a respect among somewhat thieves, so to speak.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: I hate to say that, but there are different levels. Don't you agree, Matt? Yeah, there are. And
1: uh, it's... Kind of goes back to criminology, but uh, there absolutely are. And uh, the community in in which a game warden works, you know, the sporting community, is still a small one. Even though there's, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people that participate and will come in contact with... There's a lot of relationship building, trust, and lack of trust that goes into our job. Mm. And kind of goes back to the old saying, keeps your friends close and your enemies closer. Mm. We certainly do that uh, in the game warden world. Try and be available when somebody's pissed off at another person and is ready to, so to speak, drop
2: a dime. Yeah, or... When Give they really up. hate one game warden and they like the other game warden. That's right. Good cause, bad cause. Has happened with us, huh, Matt? Yeah, it has. <laughs> Matt's kind of a likable guy at times. I'm, I'm sure Matt has a few that don't like him, but I can certainly uh, know a few that don't like me and, and, and would talk to Matt. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> and go out of their way to talk to Matt.
1: <laughs> we, uh, yeah, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other story, but.
2: Yeah, so anyways, getting back to this one, I mean, you developed enough information for warrants, and so not just one, but several.
1: Yep, yeah, we, uh, we ultimately, um, through basically a um, confidential informant, got enough probable cause to get search warrants, and we did it for three residences. We believed there was meat stored uh, at two of the residences, and then the third residence had a gun. That was supposedly the gun uh, used in these uh, in these killings. We um, executed all three warrants almost simultaneously. Yeah. The, the both residents that we thought would had meat had meat. I think we got some dope out of it. I remember at one of the residences there was a, a bowl behind an illegal owl mount.
2: <laughs> uh, you
1: know the kind of stuff you just can't make up. No, you know? no, usually. You know, people who are out night hunting aren't doing just one thing wrong. They're doing a bunch of things wrong. And uh, uh, those search warrants highlighted it. Basically, the, the people we were dealing with had been through the system many times before. So they weren't going to give anything up. You know, they, I remember them telling us, oh, that's not venison, that's pork. Just uh, lying like rugs. Certainly, they weren't the types that were going to break on an interview.
2: And these are interesting places that we search. They're not your normal, typical household. I mean, I remember going, one had outbuildings barns, and the house was uh, in disarray, and, and you're trying to go through and find evidence. It was nice to see the owls standing out there. But definitely a, you know, a challenge to search for things, but that's a nice thing. you got to keep meat in the freezer. Oh, that's one thing we need to get into is those freezers and to find the meat we found. And then, uh, yeah, to tell us it's pork when generally we can know that this has been hand-packaged. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. always pr- pretty good to go to. So, but, yeah, just to give them a, a lay of the land, you know, that we're searching. We got local PD involved. Yeah. We had state police involved, too, hitting yeah. three places simultaneously. We need all the help we can get. And, and a lot of the stuff, the drugs stuff that we hand off to the local PD or, or the state police as we find it. We can prosecute it, but it gives them part of it and actually splits up the case a little and makes it a little handier for everybody. So everybody That's gets right. a, a piece of the illegal activity and we all work together, local, state, especially when there's numbers needed. And doing, I know a lot of people that have listened to Warden's Watch have listened to some of the, the coordination it takes to pull off. A, a search warrant simultaneously because you don't want the phone going, especially nowadays with cell phones and social media yeah. um, to get that information. you got to really hit them and hit them simultaneously. So that's so important.
1: And at the time we were dealing with scanners a lot. Yes. And I can remember that the third residence had a scanner right mm-hmm. on the porch. Mm-hmm. And they were absolutely listening into the goings on. So mm-hmm. the the level of secrecy needed, you know, have a uh, successful warrant was right up there. And uh, in this case, it worked out well because the suspects were uh, playing hardball. I ultimately sent samples of the meat collected from the freezers to a forensics lab at the University of Maine. These were matched with samples uh, taken from the deer on the tarp. took a while, but I remember the samples coming back and the odds of it being anything but matching deer were like one in 3.5 million. Mm. And there is far less than 3.5 million deer in the state of New Hampshire. Mm. These particular individuals, uh, you know, playing hardball right up to the day of arraignment when they were presented with the evidence... I remember one telling the other, he said, hey, we need to go smoke a cigarette. (laughs) And I said, go ahead, come back. And they did. They decided that they'd just plead guilty. And so there was a deal struck where instead of being charged for every charge we had, which was a significant number, uh, they got charged, I think, for a couple deer apiece Mm. um, being illegally taken. And kind of one of the silver lines to that was although these weren't huge charges— both these individuals were, were indigent. They spent all their money on drugs and booze yeah. and had nothing. And so they actually both ended up doing time for these crimes, basically to pay mm. off the fine amounts owed. So um, at the end of all this, the bad guys actually did go to jail. And as I like to tell people, jail usually doesn't serve uh, pills and uh, beers. So at least not easily. That's what really hurts these guys. You know, they're, they're addicted to physically not be able to intoxicate themselves is a huge punishment. I think it out. turned out as, as well as it
2: possibly could have. Yeah, no, I would agree. It was a, a really good case that took a lot of time and a lot of effort. I mean, just packaging up the DNA the, the way it has to be and, and shipped off to the lab and then wait for those results, work with the lab, calling and talking to the people doing the process and then getting those results back. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's one of those cases that came, you know, all the way through. You, you find that bunch of deer dumped over the bank, and you start your investigation. You start collecting your evidence. I mean, first you had to thaw all those carcasses out. That that was it was, a, it was an achievement in itself.
1: Which, December in northern New Hampshire mm. is
2: not easy. No. Oh, it took a lot of work and a lot of time pulling those apart, dividing up the animals, taking all the samples, making sure you got enough samples of them so we could— later on hopefully do DNA just like you did and mitochondria DNA it's just like humans that's game wardens do basically the same thing that's at a homicide when we see a deer that's been poached we we collect the evidence we take the scene we photograph everything we collect all the DNA we can and we take a ton of pictures because that scene's never going to be the same again and we go back and look at those pictures and see if we've missed anything along the line we, we do a quick sketch if sometimes, or we do a big sketch depending on what the scene looks like. Certainly, with a fatal ATV accident, a snowmobile accident, it's a very detailed report that goes into a fatal, and the same goes into investigating all of these uh, <laughs> all of these crimes. I got I think I still have that picture of you, Matt, all suited up in your white outfit, your white painter's uniform, doing a necropsy on a moose. Moose, yep yeah that was that was great and that's what we do and that moose actually died of natural causes. that i have that but we are able to determine that i remember one of the first moose that i went on big huge bull uh me and mike moody did a nice knee crops on it and it'd been in a fight and it broke a rib and it stabbed its heart it was the the, the weirdest thing you you know you never thought that but you have to peel back the layers the hide the the mead. you have to get into those ribs and figure out what is it a bullet that killed this animal or what killed this perfectly healthy moose, and to see that rib that broke and stabbed that heart it's just like wow, and the power of another moose to do that this was a very big moose, oh um, that's that's pretty good so great great case certainly took a lot of hands doing it but uh, you were certainly the lead guy on that and pulling all those deer apart. So that was, uh, that's one of my most memorable cases, too, because of the, the heinousness of it.
1: That was, you know, a really fun one, very rewarding. And uh, cases like that also help you as a game warden when you're going through a dry spell. Mm. Because like any job, you know, you, can, you have highs and lows, and you can work really hard some seasons and not come up with much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, along those lines of rewarding cases with multiple hands on deck, do you want to talk about the success moose case, the double kill with the
2: out-of-staters? Yeah, out of staters? yeah. No, that, that, that's another good investigation. Uh, that, that took a lot of effort and a lot of work. Uh,
1: so, again, going back some years, the moose hunt in New Hampshire, uh, since its inception, has been a big thing. Back in the uh, mid-2000s, our moose population was very high. The state issued a lot of permits, and especially for those of us working in the northern region of the state, You know, moose season was uh, just as important, if not more so, than the beginning of the firearms deer season. Yeah,
2: it was our Um, busiest season back then.
1: We just burnt the candle at both ends, as you'd say, going day and night, kill site to kill site, you know, investigating double kills and uh, all kinds of other stuff. We had another egregious scenario in which a cow and a calf moose were both shot and left on the side of a logging road known as Success Pond Road. This road is used by hunters, fishermen, loggers. It's, it's really uh, got a big presence in the outdoor community in the region. I can't remember if it was a logger or another hunter who ended up seeing the legs of the moose after they bloated and started to stick up out of the grass. Do you remember mm. who that was?
2: I think it was another hunter, another moose hunter found them pretty sure that was thinking way back i'm not really sure but i I think it was another moose hunter
1: so these these moose got discovered and we got called that first day i was on scene we did a necropsy just like we were talking about Mm -hmm. and it was very obvious both moose were shot well in a carcass the size of a moose it takes some doing to find a bullet you know we're (laughs) using metal detectors we're using knives and we're you know systematically going through this entire carcass and at the end of it we came up with with two bullets one was 30 caliber and I think the other one turned out to be seven millimeter mm-hmm. and again we you know we put a story in the paper because we didn't have any ready-made suspects um, and it, it gained a lot of attention but didn't produce a lead New Hampshire's moose hunt is nine days long and that zone had a high success rate. And this this discovery happened kind of at the beginning of the hunt. So we as a group developed a plan that we were gonna basically saturate the area and try and locate every outstanding moose party who hadn't been successful. Mm-hmm. At the end of that, there was only one moose party that was not identified right. as having returned to hunt the second weekend of the season. And mm-hmm. It's a, it's a big thing to get drawn for a moose permit in New Hampshire. So, you know, if you do get drawn, you're putting in some, some time and some effort. Like, it's, it's very uncommon for, for permittees to not hunt both weekends unless they tag out. Mm-hmm. And so we had one group that didn't show up, a father and son. Yep. And they were from out of state. And you had those bullets identified, and one was very one was w- very fortunately unique. was very unique. So I I took uh, both bullets to uh, a local gun shop, uh, whom I knew uh, the owner of. He took one look, and he he right away said, without looking, I can tell you that the smaller bullet is thirty caliber, and it was uh, fired from a uh, Marlin Model Three Thirty Six. <laughs> he said, oh, really? He said, absolutely. He said, the Marlin Model 336 was one of very, very few production rifles that used micro-groove rifling. And so that micro-groove rifling is immediately apparent once you know what to look for mm. on the base of the bullet. Yes. All all we knew was we, we had that, which was very specific, and then uh, the calipers revealed that the other bullet was 7 millimeter. Yeah. And at this point, uh, we determined that the, the father and son are from Massachusetts. Right. You bring up the point that in Massachusetts, you, you basically have. have to have a paperwork trail to own guns.
2: Right. They have to list their guns that they own on their paperwork. Right. So.
1: And not only that, but we have a couple places where mass residents usually buy their guns.
2: Yes, we do. So we first checked out to find out that those guns weren't on their list. Uh, made some calls down there, they weren't on their list. But that's when we got thinking, well, where would somebody from Massachusetts buy firearms? In New Hampshire or Maine? And we have a big firearms dealer right over the border in Maine that it gets a lot of action and uh, gets, a, gets a ton of people from Massachusetts and New Hampshire that go there to buy or purchase firearms. And I happened to have a contact there. So reaching out to him, Asked him if, you know, ran the names by him. And he was like, yeah, they bought a, you know, a 7 millimeter and a Marlin... Uh, Model 336. Model 336. And I think I finished the sentence, micro-groove. <laughs> and he was like, yeah. <laughs> Putting that case together, and father and son, the son had the the thirty thirty micro but developing that case out of Massachusetts bringing them back, and, and once you throw, throw all that evidence, I think just the fact when you bring those people back, it's they already know. That's right. That, I remember that interview wasn't that tough.
1: It, it went very well, and I think what it came down to was they saw these two moose, father and son, get out of the truck and had a very brief conversation, both shot at the same time, mm-hmm. and both shot separate moose. Yep. And instead of doing the right thing and calling in and saying, hey, we screwed up, they said, Uh, we got to get right the heck out of here. And to kind of further the story, there had been a vehicle seen in the area that nobody could really identify as coming from a particular group. It turned out that Dad didn't own a vehicle and he'd rented one. Mm. And so, you know, even by description, we couldn't trace a vehicle back to the father because he didn't own one. He had just rented it. Right, right. So it, and that it was tricky. It all came together, and we we got a lot of um, positive feedback from that one and yeah. like I think I, I told you at the time it was for locals it was the perfect villain because yeah. they were people from out of state where I guess wherever you're <laughs> from, anybody from away is right <laughs> is instantly the the prime suspect. you know they they'd committed this egregious act of wasting you know two of you know the local moose the case was made
2: right and you make a great point matt it's just own up when you mess up the 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 easier you work with us is the easier we work with you when you make us jump through all kinds of hoops in the long run it's it makes it harder for us to to work with you whether it was an honest mistake or not i always remember uh out in that same country a, a, a spike bull that was shot and left during the moose season And the spikes were just barely beyond the ears. So Mm -hmm. it was probably a legal moose, just by maybe an inch or two. Well, the guy freaked and uh, went home to New York. And I remember sending the New York wardens over there to do an interview, because, again, we're looking at who's hunting in that area, who has a cow permit. And they knock on the door, and the first thing he says out of his mouth is, uh, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) Because <laughs> I remember saying, how'd the interview go? That was like, ah, it was real easy because knocked on the door and he opened the door. He goes, oh, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> you know, just, uh, ag- again, just work with us. We'll work with you. Honest mistakes happen. It's when you start hiding things and start going the other way that it just, uh, you, we have to, to treat it differently. So that's what those, uh, Operation Gave Thieves, we've had several call. Yep, I, I shot a doe and it's bucks only go out and you treat those people the best you can because we need honest people out there we want those people that'll turn themselves in because that means they'll turn somebody else in that's right you know? everybody makes mistakes mm. it's just like you say
1: how you deal with it after the fact
2: uh, absolutely you know I, I I always look at that uh, moose picture of you Mark Doug and Mike the the, the many moose that was killed yeah the, over in Cedar
1: yeah triple triple mm. kill
0: yeah.
2: three
1: three moose killed and only three shots fired. Those guys turned themselves in, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they kept one of the moose and were treated very well. You know, typically, moose violations in New Hampshire come with a two-year loss of license. We got it knocked down to one year. They paid the butchering costs of the other animals. The meat was donated, so it didn't go to waste. Right. Yeah, you want to talk about a pucker factor. We actually discovered the third moose while we were investigating the two that were known. Those guys all but fainted. It was... uh, Uh, Again, another example of how, you know, how you act after the fact, you know, determines your fate.
2: Right. It's funny because that's one thing during the moose season. We used to have a lot of double kills because sometimes bulls are together. And one will fall down and the other might be bedded so he stands up. So in your mind, the moose that you just shot, you know, is still standing there. And you put another bullet in it and you walk up and you find two moose. So... It happens it, it happens to some of the best hunters I've known and it's just make that call because when the game warden happens to be out there checking a kill site or something and finds double moose then we, we start that investigation it' certainly uh, I, I I don't know how many of those I investigated over the years Matt but it, was, it had to be it was over a dozen I bet because I can I can flip through my mind to different scenarios uh, I found myself yelling at the TV The other day, I was watching Meat Eater on Netflix, and the guy shoots the moose, and he goes to shoot again. I'm like, "Don't shoot, don't!" (laughs) And my kid looks at me. I'm like, "How they want to put that on TV, anyways, Andrew?" (laughs) And I had to tell him the scenario, but instantly. And you get uh, some guides that'll do the same because once they, you got one shot, make it count because that second shot, we're not going to let you make it because it's just it's so prevalent. And and it happens, and then your mind plays tricks with you because of the scenario. I've, I've had deer shot the same way. A guy shot three deer. Well, the ones that were bedded kept standing up. He thought he was shooting the same deer. He gets over there, there's three dead deer. And <laughs> that's got to be a pucker factor, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, moving on. Jeez, just a lot of things. I, I want to go into search and rescue, which I, I, I know you have a lot of those those, those stories because i've made some of those stories for you unfortunately me and glenn talked about the night you and him spent out the pouring rain that i asked you to stay up on the mountain yeah. <laughs> because I, I was like you guys can hike like an hour and a half out but you only got like three hours till morning Ah, <laughs> uh, time has softened
1: it wade you didn't ask us you told us. okay so. yes
2: i told you yeah. yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which was the right call, because, yeah, it, oh. we were, we were four miles up. That's just one of those scenarios that you can't make up. In that case, uh, a college professor and his wife separated while coming down off of Mount Madison. She made it out and he didn't. Mm. Kind of to preface this story, that particular year, I'd actually been on another very mild rescue just hours before that. And, it went extremely well. It was a, a, a simple walk out on a very easy trail. And I remember thinking as I was driving home, like, man, like I have been through this whole year and I haven't had to spend a whole night out yet, which <laughs> is, uh, practically non-existent in our world in the North country search yeah. and rescue scene. And I didn't make it to the end of the road I was driving on before I was getting called to this Mount Madison one. and uh, it was raining, and, uh, Torrential and the, downpours. Yeah, the weather had turned miserable. And so Glenn Lucas and I are uh, working our way up this trail. We've got volunteers in the area. At one point, we're hollering. We get a response. We think we've got them. It turns out to be AMC volunteers, which we figured out through radio communication. Mount Madison is just a long mountain. There's no short way to get to the summit. Just a couple hours before dawn, we make it to tree line. At tree line, uh, basically, there becomes a jumbled rock slope above you, and this extends for a long, long way. And it's not in an area that can be searched effectively unless you have daylight. It just can't. It's, it's a spot where somebody would seek shelter and they can hide and be, you know, completely out of sight within feet of you. And so once we get to this spot, we, we, make radio contact with you. You tell us to stay put. Glenn's grumpy about it. Um, <laughs> I'm like, well, we're here, and I don't want to hike all the way in and out anyway. We had gear to spend the night. Uh, and so we decide we're going to bivy up for a couple hours. But before we do, we shine our lights around. We holler the name of the guy we're looking for. No response. So we bivy up. And I remember telling Glenn I didn't know if I was going to be able to sleep or not right about the time the first snore erupted. I can also tell you that after two hours of laying on the ground, even in good gear, I was shivering violently when the sun came up. And And it
2: wasn't that cold. It it was uh... not. It was
1: about 50 degrees. So that was a really uh, good reality check. So we get up at dawn and uh, continue searching our way up the mountain. Once we get towards the summit, we hit an intersection where some other hikers are at. We describe the gentleman. And they said, yeah, he just went that way towards what's known as the Great Gulf. And so we basically go jogging after him and ended up catching him. And it took the vast majority of the day to actually work our way out with him. He turned out to be okay, uh, which was a miracle because he had limited gear. But kind of the bullet point of the story was that, you know, we told him about our efforts to get him the night before. And he said, oh, was that you guys shining lights and hollering my name a couple hours before dawn? Mm. Like, yeah, sure it was. And he said, oh, man. He said, I thought I was hallucinating, so I didn't respond back. He was sitting 100 yards away from us on the rocks watching us, mm. listening to us yell his name. And he thought he was hallucinating, so he didn't respond.
2: Yeah. Crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. crazy. Yeah. Hotel. Oh, what's your worst search and rescue can you pick that out of the top of your that, head that one's actually easy so
1: <laughs> the the worst one i've ever been on was uh, for a gentleman named ed bacon and i don't mind using his name because it's highly publicized and it was uh, basically just the perfect storm of misery the only thing it didn't have was um cold temperatures and it's a good thing because otherwise somebody probably would have died but we had this fall storm predicted that was going to be so bad that the white mountain national forest was going to shut down and that doesn't happen for anything short of a significant natural disaster Mm. been well publicized bad weather's coming stay away the forest is shutting down Mm. there was a hiker from the midwest named ed bacon who uh Decided he was going to go anyway. He was not in good health, not well prepared, and he got hit by a storm and basically trapped near the summit of Mount Lafayette. And Lafayette's uh, a pretty imposing mountain. It's got absolutely Gnarly. terrible weather. It's very popular. I personally <laughs> dislike the mountain more than I can say. So several crews of us had to go up after this guy. And uh, during the time we were out, over five inches of rain fell on us. If, if we jumped in a lake, we could not have been more soaked. We got hammered by high wind, stuff that was knocking us to the ground. It, it got very, very hairy. One of uh, uh, our most strong team members on the search and rescue team was hypothermic we had to get him warmed and back in a better position. When we finally get to this guy, uh, he's a big man. He's over 200 pounds. And carrying somebody that weight is is hard enough amongst other things. Never mind the fact it's coming off a mountain and we're about five miles from the road. And it took forever. He became pretty uh, surly while laying in the litter. He got in a verbal altercation with multiple members uh, of the team that had come to get him. Trickles uh, that normally existed were raging rivers we had to rope across. Uh, tension grew between members of fishing Game and some of the volunteer search and rescue community who had different opinions on how to deal with things. You know, fights almost broke out. And at the very end of it, somebody diverted us on a shortcut, a member of the crew who was carrying, and we ended up off-trail having to bushwhack down to the interstate, and it was just the coup de gras as far as you know, the misery factor. Wow. And still to this day, if somebody said you could uh, only finish your career by doing that again, I would probably call it because it was that bad. If I never go through anything that miserable again... I'll be just fine. So.
2: Yeah. No, that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't on that one. You, know, you were out of the area, and thank God I was a lieutenant, but I have heard from many of the wardens and the the, the, the volunteer search and rescue yeah. members that that was, the mo- that was horrendous. And sometimes it has to do with the patient, too. Just their attitude can turn everything sour. If People are very happy, and generally they are happy to see you. Yep. I can't even imagine. I mean, I've dealt with a few of them, but... Even not to that extent, Matt. I just even the the most angry people are usually somewhat friendly and are, are somewhat thankful. That's like, right.
1: In this case, we received none of that, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was just
2: absolutely miserable.
1: There's been colder rescues and and harder rescues in the totality of things. That was by far the most miserable.
2: Yeah. And people, when it, when it talks about these search and rescue missions, you put people in a litter, and then you carry them down a trail, and you put them in the middle of the trail that's designed for people to go in single file. So basically, both rescuers on either side of the litter are walking on the edge of the trail, which is eroded, usually slippery. It, it, it's it's hard and difficult to begin with. And then you throw going off trail, bushwhacking. I, I can't say I've ever done that on a rescue, mat because that's... Uh, Mostly, you know, you get to the trail and you go. It's it's very yeah. rare that you have to go off the trail, but...
1: It is rare, and we were just flat out looking for some sort of relief at mm-hmm. that point. And it
2: got worse. And it got worse. hmm Yeah, I know a lot of us uh, lieutenants map out those, uh, those shortcuts that actually work in the long run. <laughs> oh, no, that, that, that's great. I, I feel like we got so much more to talk about, Matt, and, uh, we're getting somewhat close.
1: We are getting somewhat close. I think we're going to have to shift our focus to shooting.
2: Yeah. Uh, so. So we'll come back, though. I've, on our trip north, I hope. And, uh, I certainly want to talk about, you know, Northwood's Law before they air your, your accident you just had, too. I was hoping we could talk about that. We can talk about that as well. That would be good. Although I, I must say, I'd like you and Bob Mancini to get together sometime because you and Bob have had some, Memorable times. I don't know if I'd ever put you guys, try to put you guys together, because you seem to be that that uh, vortex of uh, <laughs> serious incidents. So the last
1: day we worked <laughs> together, we talked about that. We, we had not worked together in about three months due to... The crash I was involved in, really, we were both involved in. And uh, yeah, that subject came up. So that'll be more stories for another day.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yes. So it's, you guys are the Bermuda Triangle of the North Country when you oh put boy. Matt Holmes and Bob Mancini together. Uh, <laughs> somehow I think we're the Bermuda Triangle because we seem to have a lot more incidents. We do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we can talk about some of those. So We'll get to this uh, AIM competition, and hopefully we'll have a good show in here today. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to pull off some good shots. Uh, been practicing a little. Uh, and I've seen you shoot your 30-30 <laughs> like nobody's business. Uh, I remember just after qualification, Matt took out his 30-30 at the end of the qualification because he hadn't shot it yet that year. And he shot a can, and I think you hit it five times as it was moving, and kicking it up the bank, and I was like, wow. <laughs> and you've, you've killed a lot of deer with that firearm, haven't you? I
1: have, you know. I, I'm i a huge proponent, as both a game warden and a hunter, of using a weapon that you've got confidence in. Yes. And for me, that's it.
2: And you've had that weapon for a long time? For a
1: long time, ever since I was 13. Oh. And uh, it's, uh, it's done its job well, and... Uh, Again, I uh, I use it like an extension of my arm.
2: Yes, and it, it it certainly is like that. Uh, I told Matt he should bring his 3030 down to this uh, this trap shoot and, and he'd probably do better with that that's than a, he will
1: with I a probably shotgun. will with a shotgun. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to this event and uh, that'll be cool. We'll we'll catch up with you later. <laughs> His warden's watch.